0: That song, Living Hope, Frank, it touched me too. When that phrase came up, he came, and I, I probably don't have this exactly right, but I wrote it down. When he came to bear my cross and wear my sin. That's heavy. That's that's deep. That's important. He came to bear our cross. In other words, we should have been on the cross, not him. And I love that imagery. He came to wear. As you wear a coat or a dress or a suit, he came to wear our sin. So that we might be able to wear his righteousness. Therein is the gospel. And the truth of the gospel. And the power of the gospel. You know there's probably nothing in all the world that makes us consider the brevity of life than when someone we hold dear dies. You've felt that pain, you've experienced that. This past Friday, we're coming back from staff retreat and I got a call on my phone from my sister that one of my best friends in high school had crashed, basically. He had a heart cath on Thursday, Friday morning he crashed. And he'd done this before, he was not healthy. Rick was three months older than I am. And, uh, and we used to do everything together in high school. We had, we, we, the Nearest thing I ever came to being in a secret society was in what we call the brotherhood in high school. There was four of us. Richard Crouch, Bill Haynes, or Billy Haynes back then, uh, Tim Pace, and, and Roger Dempsey. And, and we did all sorts of things together all legally and all mostly morally and uh, we, but we were the brotherhood we even bought in the, in the yearbook the school yearbook we came up with our own symbol I can't describe it to you it was just some straight lines making triangles that fit together and had our initials in each one and we put it in the yearbook and people were going who is this brotherhood? What is this brotherhood all about? and we had fun with that. I really wanted to take a picture of that and put it on the screen this morning because, but somebody in my yearbook wrote across it, they wrote a note across it, so I, I can't even get the picture of it now, but someone that you, and, and Rick and I would lost track through the years, he was in law enforcement, was chief police in three different cities, and, and uh, married the girl that lived next door to me growing up, Mary Hicks, who literally, our houses were separated by about, 75 to 100 yards, and he ended up marrying Mary, and uh, it was just a, a lot of stuff, going, just a lot of intertwining. We kind of lost; I mean, we hadn't lost touch. We talked every now and then, but we weren't. Our closeness wasn't there. But yesterday morning at 2 a.m., Rick entered into eternity. And my greatest fear is that he entered into eternity without Christ, not wearing the righteousness of Christ. But trying to, Rick was a good guy. If I needed something and I called him up and said, hey Rick, I need for you to do this for me, he would have said, I'll be there as soon as I can get there. Or, I'll do it right now or whatever. I mean, he was a good man. Loved the law, enforced the law in Starkville, Mississippi, where Mississippi State is. And I just gotta tell you, in a college town, that's not easy to do. And um, he would arrest, a, or his policeman would arrest a football player every now and then, and that was really rough on him. And then in Moultrie, Georgia, and then in Gadsden, Alabama, and, and he was a good guy, enforced the law. But boy, when you come to Romans, and you realize the depth and the gravity of sin, and the fact that if Christ does not wear, as that song said, if Christ does not wear our sin so that we can wear his righteousness, there is no hope. I, I, pray, I, I don't know that Rick didn't know Christ. I don't know that. And I pray that he did in these intervening days when I was not with him and when he had some health issues. I, I pray that he, he put his hope in Christ and Christ alone, not in his goodness but in the Savior. But when you come to Romans, you you think about that, and it ought to make us think about that in our own lives because Paul is so clear here, uh, all the way up to where we are right now, the 13th verse of the 7th chapter, which we looked at last week. We're not really going any further. We'll allude to the next part of the chapter. We won't get into it until next week. But from, from chapter 1 through chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has laid out a clear and developed a profound anatomy of sin. You, you know what anatomy is. Anatomy is the study of, of a body. And, and you, if you study anatomy, you study all the parts and all the, the things that make it tick and make it work and keep it healthy. And, 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 and Paul is saying that, that sin is a living matter. And so there's an anatomy that he lays out. Now last week we saw this in verse 13 of chapter 7. Did that which is good, that is the law of God, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The Apostle Paul is basically saying here that sin is is far deeper, far more treacherous, a far bigger lie than we can even begin to imagine as a matter of fact sin begins at the motivational level of life it, it's not just it's not just something we say oh it's a peccadillo it's something we just can't help it's something we gotta go no it begins in our emotions it begins in our in our lives i i think uh, red was reading me some things last night from Sinclair Ferguson in the Sunday school lesson this morning uh, that you studied in Sunday school. And let me tell you something, if you weren't in Sunday school, get that book and read that portion for this Sunday's lesson. Because what what Ferguson talked about there was so clear, what we're talking about here, about how opportunity and, and lust, or opportunity and desire tend to coalesce seem to come together and and cause us to sin if there's no opportunity we have desire but there's no opportunity we won't sin if we have opportunity but there's no desire there for what that opportunity is there won't be sin but more and more and more in our lives we see things coming together that that the opportunity is there and the desire is there and so we just give in to the desire because it's an opportune thing to do Paul is going to show us when we get in the latter part of chapter 7 and chapter 8 that really the only, way that, the only way that we can avoid that is through the application of the gospel by the Holy Spirit in our lives on a consistent basis. That is gospel truth permeating us, gospel truth filling us, gospel truth being what we think about and what we live by on a consistent, consistent basis. But in Romans one through seven, the apostle Paul has shown us what sin really is and how it operates in our lives always, just sometimes right under the surface of our life. And so what I wanna do is look at that anatomy this morning, look at that breakdown that Paul gives before we move any further. Because sometimes we can get to chapter 7 or chapter 8 in Romans and we can forget what he said in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and etc. And those have all built to where he is right now. So I want you to see this and I want you to remember this. In the first chapter, in, in verse 21 of that first chapter, the Apostle Paul told us the first thing about sin. He said, number one, our root problem in our lives is an unwillingness to glorify God. Paul said in Romans 21, For though they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him. Uh, giving, glo- giving Him glory, glorifying Him, is to give Him the centrality in your life that He is due what paul is saying here we tend to push god to the periphery we we tend to try to get him out of the way and we want to do what we want to do and we don't give we don't glorify him we don't give thanks to him we give thanks to one another, we give thanks to ourselves, we praise ourselves at what we have done or are doing, but, but we forget that in reality God is the great giver of all things and God is at the center of all that. And unless we see that and acknowledge that and glorify Him in that, then we are on a bad road downhill quickly. Paul says that's the That's the root. That's that's a root in everybody's life on the face of the earth. Now, if you're here in a Christian, you're you're, you're scratching your head and saying, wait a minute, I, I thought I was doing it. We'll get to that. But you were born this way, my friend. Everybody was. There is an unwillingness to give God the central place of honor and glory and obedience in your life. So our root problem is we just don't glorify Him. We will not glorify Him. A second problem that Paul deals with in this matter of sin is is still in in chapter 1. And he says that because of us not glorifying Him nor giving Him thanks for His provisions in our life, then we choose to make created things gods in our life. Little g. We, we choose to make little, other things, created things, God in our lives. He said in verse 21, uh, 25 rather, in chapter 1, we, we worship created things rather than the Creator. We worship created things rather than the Creator. Listen, folks, here's number one rule. I don't care if you profess to be an atheist, an agnostic, a, a, a a Muslim, a, a Buddhist, uh, or a Christian, or, or anything in between all those. We must worship something. And we will worship something. It will either be the living and the true God, the one who has revealed himself in his word and in, the, in his son Jesus Christ we will either worship the true and the living God or we will worship something that he has created in the life of the atheist, the agnostic, basically that that God of worship is, is self. But we all will worship something. I think I saw that illustrated, oh, just vividly this past week in the news. This is not a political statement, it's a moral statement. This is not a political statement, it's a truth statement. But I don't know if you were watching, but, but a particular Virginia delegate in their legislature uh, sponsored a bill that would allow the termination of a pregnancy right up to the point of birth. And, and the governor clarified a little more what he really wanted. And he said, oh, but if the baby is born and the mother's really not sure she wants it because of whatever circumstances there might be there, then they'll, they'll, they'll keep the baby comfortable, they'll make some decisions, and they'll, and they'll have some talk about it, and it'll be decided whether the baby is aborted post-birth rather than in the mother's womb, all of which is evil. But this is what caught me on that very same day that she presented that bill to the virginia delegates on that very exact same day she also presented house bill number 2495 this didn't make the news quite as vividly as the other did but this is what house bill 2495 was It was for the protection of canker worms and caterpillars. That there could be no spraying of of pesticides during certain months because it might kill the canker worms and caterpillars. Kill a baby right up to birth. That's okay because that's worshiping the God of our age, the God of convenience, the God of comfort, the God of my desires, but don't dare do anything that's gonna kill a caterpillar. God help us, where have we gone? Because the truth is we will worship something, we will worship the created things if we do not give God glory, if we don't glorify him or give thanks to him. During the offertory, I ran over and got permission to do this because I forgot to do it beforehand. But maybe you've seen this, but last week, uh, Kayla Sweeney, one of our young ladies, who is something of a poet, and she knows it because she's a good one. <laughs> you know, the, the same poet and didn't know it. She knows it. But the title of her poem was Dear Gods with a little g. You don't have a voice to tell me. You are not wise or good or true. Still dust cannot talk back to you. But you come in my life as subtle as the labels I put on your rearing heads. As I cover my ears to miss the dread of the God, capital G, fiercely, lovingly jealous for me. You are painted by unlikely lights and shadowing. Pictured with part truth and part flattery, mixed with strokes of the fear that cowers in me. Sometimes you are things or people, but never exactly. You are tinted by sin, an image without grace. You you never wear a truth-telling face. But God's, with the little g, you are ultimately without victory. Victory. You don't stand a chance of sticking with me. Your end is dust and misery. For the God with the big G is jealous for me and his daughters and sons transformed treasures already won, once sin clad jars that were crushed and respawn till our potter put his love within. You will woo. And at times we will cave, but stones and dust, phones and lust, false hopes and trust in them will never save. And he, and he will whisper or call or allow us to fall until we see he is higher and better. Than God with little g's, and he will always lead us home. The gods of little g's are the idols of our lives, things that push away God's glory in our lives. Things that seek to eclipse God. As the moon eclipsed the sun in a solar eclipse. Things that seek to eclipse God. Those gods with little g's. Those idols that we play with and toy with. Not worshipping the true God. Not giving Him glory. But worshipping that which is created. (laughs) It was not without accident that our responsive reading this morning was Psalm 115, where David talks about the idols and how they will be crushed by the living God. It's not without reason that I had Pastor Michael read from, from Isaiah chapter 45, where he says that they have no meaning, they have no power unless we give them power, unless we give them meaning in our own life they are dead they have feet but they can't walk they have mouths but they can't speak they have ears but they can't hear but yet so often we bow down to them so Paul says we didn't glorify God we decided to worship the creature rather than the the creator and that can be even as Kayla said in her poem that can be things or people or or sorta things and sorta people not really quite either one but Something we give our allegiance to. But Paul goes on, and in, in, in chapter 1, he says, Therefore, each life is distorted by the lie. At the base of all our life choices, our emotional structure, our personality, is a false belief system centered on an idol if it's not centered in Jesus Christ. we believe that something besides God can give us the life and the joy that honestly only He can give Romans 1.25 they exchanged the truth of God for a lie they didn't glorify Him they looked upon the creatures rather than the creator and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie And, and, and Their thinking, in their thinking, they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. If we look to anything, if we look to anything besides Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Him alone, anything at all, if we look to that to be our righteousness and our our, our ticket into heaven, if you will, We recognize that that's an idol, and and our, our, our life has been distorted by a lie, and every life that's not in Christ is being distorted by a lie, the lie of this world, the spirit of this age that says, look to me and I'll give you happiness. Look to me and I'll give you what you want. Look to me and I'll make you rich. Look to me and go on and on and on, whatever it might be. And the truth is, there is no joy, no happiness, no peace, no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. Each one of these lies, each one of these idols Fourthly, bring with it a, a kind of slavery, a kind of bondage, when we worship and serve created things. And, and, and so, so really, when you're outside of Christ, no one is actually ever, ever free at liberty. For, for it's whatever we give ourselves to, Paul has made clear in Romans 3 and, and in Romans 4, whatever we give ourselves to, that thing we must serve. If we give ourselves to our job totally and completely and that's all that matters and it becomes the idol where we want our, our, our source of happiness and joy then it's an idol. It's not just a thing to be able to provide for your needs. If we look to another person and say, oh, I, I, and next week I'm going to give you some questions to ask but if we look to another person oh man, life without this person would not be good. It would be, it would be almost hell on earth if I don't have this person. If, if that's the attitude, then that person is an idol. The only thing either, that you or I, either one, ought to ever say, we just cannot live without is the Lord Jesus Christ and a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So there's a bondage. Every human being has an ultimate good that they look to. This is the best. This is above everything else. And all my choices are made on the basis of what I see as the ultimate good. Maybe it's to be a millionaire. Although today I don't think it's quite what it used to be. Uh, maybe it's to be a billionaire. Uh, and, and say, oh, that's what I want. So every choice I make moves me toward doing that. Paul would say you're enslaved to it. You have given yourself to that idol. And it controls you. It rules you. Romans 6, 16, Paul said, Do you not know? It's a firm statement. Do you not know? Do you not realize? Do you not understand that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Every human being on the face of the earth is in obedience to somebody. Thus meaning that every person on the face of the earth is in some kind of what we would call as Christians a covenant relationship to a Lord. May not be capital L Lord or capital G God. It it may be little L Lord and little g God. But every person is in some kind of covenant relationship to that which they present themselves to. That's why it's important to give yourself to to, Christ, to give everything, to see Him as your ultimate good, your ultimate hope, your ultimate glory. The apostle went on in that same passage and said, Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? Then he said this But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, that is the gospel, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul says, this is where the world is, presenting ourselves to false idols, false gods all the time. And yet, thanks be to God, if you are in Christ, you have presented yourself as a slave of righteousness, not a slave of sin, not a slave of disobedience, not a slave to the world, a slave of Christ. A doulos of Christ. That's what Paul called himself over and over again. He would start his epistles. I, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. I have presented myself to him as my Lord. I have presented myself to him as my Savior, my true Savior. I presented myself to him as the only one who can do that. And he has done it. And Paul says, thanks be to God. Now the the next thing we're going to see, I guess it'll be the fifth point, if you will, if you're keeping points here, is that even after our conversion, though, even after the thanks be to God, He's done a work in you, our old false saviors and false lords rear their ugly head. That's what Romans 7, 14 through 25 is all about and we'll look at that in depth over the next few weeks it's what it's all about the, 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 the false belief systems are hard to eradicate the, false, the lies that we have believed still tend to d- distort our lives unless the power of the Holy Spirit renews us continually in our minds and our hearts 14 through 25 we'll break all that down and we'll see how that works That's what sanctification is i'll get in trouble for this but that's what we're going to be talking about in my grace equipping class in in mortification of sin license to kill but of course that's also what we're talking about a good bit in pilgrims progress too and 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 disciplines of grace by pastor ricky and 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 uh even in the counseling course by uh Pastor Todd, they'll be talking about that sort of thing because there's a need in our lives to see the Holy Spirit cleansing our old thinking, our own living, old living and leading us in His righteousness. So Paul has made clear through chapter 6 particularly, he has made clear that the the key to freedom is the application of the gospel to your life. He says in verse 14 of chapter 6, for sin will have no dominion over you, no power to destroy you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Literally, he says, sin will not be your master, if you are in Christ and presenting yourselves to Him as His slave, as, his, as your Lord, sin will not be your master. Sin will not have dominion in your life. Because thanks be to God, you who are once slaves to sin have become obedient. From the heart to the gospel. Thanks be to God, you are now in grace and not under law. Thanks be to God, He is now your Savior and your Lord. Not just a religious figure that says some nice things every now and then and does a miracle every now and then. He is your Lord and your Savior. Thanks be the God, Paul says, because it's by his Holy Spirit that that takes place in our lives. So you see, as we're we're thinking through the the whole anatomy of sin, it starts starts in our motivations, it starts in our thinking. You could go back to David in, in... his sin with Bathsheba, he wasn't thinking about doing anything nefarious or anything sinful that day, I don't think. I was already being sinful by not being out with his troops and he was being lazy and he was sleeping in and doing all those kind of things. But, but when the opportunity of looking upon Bathsheba arose and his desires were filled up, he fell. Because he was not walking in obedience. Unless we make it a conscious effort to say, Lord, guide me in obedience to your truth, your word. To see you as the only true and living God. Every single day in our life, we will find ourselves in the same situation that David did opportunity and lust, opportunity and desire will come together, coalesce, as Sinclair Ferguson said. And we will give in. And at that moment, what we're doing is we're saying, you know, mm, we'll say this consciously probably, but this is what we're saying. I'm going to believe the lie today. You know, just, just for today, it won't matter tomorrow, it won't matter next week, it won't matter a month from now. But just for today, because all this is coming together, I'm just going to believe the lie that I can really find joy and pleasure and, and everything I want right here, right now. Maybe it's, maybe it's not like David's, which was a sexual sin, maybe it's a financial sin where I can just cheat just a little bit, just for today. Because David took his eyes off of what God wanted and put it on what David wanted. And he believed the lie. I don't don't know what the lie is in your life that just continues to scrape at you. Just continues to whisper in your ear. Hey, 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 look over here. Look what I can give you. Look what you can have. Man, you can have it easily. I can bring the opportunity to your desire. Hey, here's what you need to do. I don't know what your lie is. That the liar loves to lie to you about. But I do know this. It's a lie. And the only hope and the only solution to the anatomy of what goes on with sin in a person's life is for the Holy Spirit to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life every day, to my life every day. Not just for salvation. That was, that was great. That was good. That was important. It has to start, but apply it to our life every single day. Let's pray together. Father, sin is deceptive and is a lie that promises life and gives death. Lord, we live in a nation that is more and more and more believing the lie, that we have the power over life and death, that we have the right to make decisions that belong only to you, whether it's fidelity in marriage or whether it's taking a life in the womb, those, those only belong to you, Lord. guard us, O oh Father, from listening to the lie. Guard our young people from listening to the lie that they will hear tomorrow in classrooms, from their peers and others. Guard our adults from listening to the lie that they will hear at work tomorrow, either from a boss or a coworker or any number of places. Lord, guard us from the lie that makes us think that what really is important is that we are glorified and that we get credit rather than you. Father, Father, guard us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. The The most beautiful truth of all the New Testament that we who have trusted you are in Christ. And you are our hope, you are our joy, you are our peace. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' holy, holy name. Amen. Holy Spirit, living breath of God.